Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, non-domination, cooperation in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Culbertson. This is another in the Anarchism 101 series. In this case, I will be speaking to Edward Castleton about the excerpt from Proudhon's What is Property? If you haven't listened to that excerpt, you can go back earlier in the feed to listen to it, but I think also Edward and I cover the text and Proudhon's life well without you having to read or listen to that piece. Coming up after the music, my conversation with Edward Castleton. Hello, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is Anarchism 101, the series uh, examining key anarchist texts and thinkers. Today, the text is uh, an excerpt from What is Property, often called Property is Theft by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, and my guest is Edward Castleton, an expert on Proudhon. Edward, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. So as soon as I started reading over your work, I realized there was no way for us to understand Proudhon without doing some French revolutionary history. And also, uh, the previous two episodes have been on sort of Kropotkin's Britannica survey and Emma Goldman's Anarchist Manifesto. So this actually begins the historical narrative. So you have the uh, unfortunate privilege of going first in the historical narrative. And when we talk about Bakunin, people already know what happened in 1848, but you and I are going to have to cover at least briefly um, 1848. And then for, uh, I'm going to try, listeners, to give you a very fast survey of the tumultuous revolutionary events in France from 1789 to 1848. And my guest will correct me with what I get wrong, because I think it is impossible to understand anarchism without understanding these revolutionary moments, especially the ones in France. And if you're like me, you didn't learn this stuff in high school. Something happened 1789, guillotine, Napoleon. That was basically what I learned in, in high school. And I'm trying to do a little bit more in depth than that, but quickly. So you've, you're familiar with the revolution of 1789, often called the French Revolution, probably better called the Great French Revolution because there've been so many French revolutions. And what happens in 1789, is there's a movement, uh, uh, sometimes called a liberal movement, against the Ancien Regime, the rule of Louis XIV. Maybe the central figure, one of the central figures, is the Franco-American hero of two worlds, hero of two worlds, Lafayette, and he seems to be trying to establish a constitutional monarchy, a liberal constitutional monarchy. Now, in 1792 and 1793, things take a turn much further to the left. This is the, uh, what do they call it, the August Revolution. Edward, I'm blanking on the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. And um, people like Danton and Robespierre eventually take power over the Girondins. There's all sorts of stuff that you don't need to know, but the ultimate result is, rather than a constitutional monarchy, an attempt to create a purely Republican government in which the king is executed and all power is to the people. This eventually leads to both war with a number of other European powers and the uh, famous terror and the guillotine presided over by Robespierre. Robespierre's fall essentially is that he executes Danton, his 
you know, not his greatest ally, but his most powerful ally. And he threatens to execute more people. So Robespierre is overthrown in what's called the Thermidorian reaction. And the people who overthrow Robespierre seem to mostly do it because they don't want to get guillotined. They replace his government with a government whose ideology is not really clear. It's people who are doing the best to run the country when everything has been torn apart. Eventually, to oversimplify again, a particular general who is working for these people, you've heard of him, his name is Napoleon, grows increasingly powerful, eventually takes the government for himself, eventually turns it into an emperorship, but then is defeated and the brother of Louis the Sixteenth, the guy they executed to start the whole thing, comes back. This is the Bourbon Restoration. That is a uh, fairly repressive and traditional hierarchical monarchical government. There's unrest again. There is a, another revolution, which I believe is in 1830. Lafayette comes out of retirement and he ends up the central figure again. He finally gets to establish his constitutional monarchy that he dreamed of with a cousin of the Bourbons in sort of a like George Washington place. That doesn't really work out. It quickly becomes not the democratic, but also monarchical dream Lafayette has. Lafayette gets pushed aside. The bankers take over. And uh, this government, the July monarchy, becomes the government of the wealthy, of the powerful bourgeoisie. Eventually, in 1848, all sorts of national revolutions break out all over Europe. One of them is in France. And uh, the, the July monarch Louis Philippe is overthrown. And the result is this new thing, the Second Republic, returning back to sort of the 1789 or 1792 idea. And very quickly, they elect a powerful president who happens to also be named Napoleon because he is related to Napoleon. And very, very quickly, this democratically elected president becomes Emperor Napoleon III. And that is the that is the rough narrative, Edward, if I've if I've got it, of the revolutionary events from 1789 leading into the the end of Proudhon's life during this second empire. So does that sound roughly right to you? And if so, you can, well, actually first, does that sound roughly right to you? I think that's, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, you have to, the, the paradox, I guess, of, of Napoleon III and his regime, uh, which I think was very troublesome and shocking for many contemporaries, uh, was that, uh, well, as you pointed out, he was first elected president in 1848. So when the French people actually have the opportunity, well, at least French men, because <laughs> women didn't vote until the 20th century, but French men, all French men have the opportunity to vote. Uh, and so property restrictions are lifted. So there's no more limited franchise by how much wealth you have and how much you pay in taxes. Once, once that occurred, people voted to have Napoleon, a Napoleon, a Bonaparte. He was the nephew of the great Napoleon, uh, they voted to have a Napoleon back in power. And then when he had a coup d'etat at the end of 1851 and uh, had a plebiscite, or you could call it a referendum, referendum. Uh, uh, as do you approve of the coup d'etat, 
overwhelmingly people were like, you know, said, yeah, we love it. And then when he had a second one in 1852 about, uh, do you want to have a second empire with me as the hereditary emperor? They were like, great, let's do it. <laughs> so I think that if you look at this narrative arc that we're talking about, um, the, the upsetting thing, which probably would resonate with your audience more if perhaps Donald Trump were still in power, <laughs> is that sometimes uh, democracy can lead to authoritarian rulers. And the principles of popular sovereignty don't necessarily wind up producing an enlightened polity, so to speak. Um, yeah, this is this is very important to me right now, Edward. Kind of jumping out of the of the narrative in the 19th century, but you're right. Uh, we're having this trouble today. We in America after January 6th and Trump, everyone wants to defend this idea of democracy, and then they say we need to defend you know, national elections. We need to defend the Supreme Court, things like that, things that uh, do not seem very d democratic. And so someone like Proudhon, who or says- even the, Or even the CIA and the FBI. Yes, I mean, that's a, so someone like Proudhon who says, uh, you know, something like universal suffrage, which we have all been taught, if you grew up in any Western country, is like the key to democracy. In fact, can it, it's not just that it could lead to an emperor figure, but many anarchists, and I would say Proudhon as well, sort of argue that it almost inevitably does lead to an emperor figure. And it doesn't matter whether you call that person president or emperor. Once the people, if paralyzed with the people, and the people vote Louis Napoleon to be emperor, then Louis Napoleon is, is emperor and can order his troops to fire on the people. And that is what the people asked for. And that seems like sure, not a version of democracy. Between, sure, the difference between having a king and a... And a and the people, it's still a unitary sovereign. Yes. Uh, so it winds up having the same effect. You're just replacing one sovereign in many ways with another. Yeah, the definition of the sovereign, if it's hereditary or if it's based on universal manhood suffrage, yeah, sure changes. But you still have this concentration of power such that when Louis Napoleon uh, Bonaparte, before he's actually officially Napoleon III, has this referendum on the coup d'etat, uh, Bruno wrote in his diaries, he's more powerful than Louis XIV ever was yeah. because not only does he have all the power of the state, he has it democratically because people are saying, we want you to have this power. And this is actually an important issue because, um, because it is related. And, and here I'll just add something to the sort of, broad stroke narrative that you actually just did. Um, it is related to the question of property. Um, it's important to go back and understand that one of the big accomplishments of Napoleon the first, the first emperor, was drafting the civil code, which is still in effect in France, but which has also been appropriated in many, many other countries, which was basically, look, we've had this, Napoleon's idea and his these different jurists and legal thinkers around him was this was a period of chaos, uh, church properties and um, the aristocratic properties have been expropriated. We have a sort of new bourgeois class, which is in the ascendancy, and we have to come up with a lot of rules for how property should be organized. What are the rules for, you know, succession, uh, inheriting things, for, you know, the property of your, you know, with your walls abutting your neighbor's property. I mean, all these things, it became important to Napoleon who was obsessed with sort of 
organizing things uh, to just have all these rules set up so that you could move beyond a regime based on common law or customary uh, rules, which might have characterized a previous feudal, you could call it, or old regime uh, type of society. And uh, when he did this, also as he spent a lot of time fighting and conquering lots of other places in Europe, he tried to spread this sort of civil code idea to other countries. And so and at the same time, he was making war militarily on all these different European countries. He was also making sort of war on common law. And this was sort of rationalization of ownership was very important. One of the key accomplishments of Napoleon, because you can say what you want about how Napoleon's military prowess, but at the end of the day, despite however many battles he, he won, uh, he lost in the end. And he didn't really gain any territory because uh, all that territory that he gained during all these wars was lost uh, well, after the two defeats in 1814 and then with Waterloo in, in 1815. But the civil code is still around in France. It's still there. And it's even been borrowed by other countries too. So this is a major accomplishment. And it's important to understand Proudhon in this regard because Proudhon read a lot of these commentators on the civil code. Because once you have the civil code, it becomes like the Bible or the, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, it becomes this thing that then all these different lawyers and legal thinkers can argue about, right? Because that is the text. Those are the rules. That is the Bible. Everyone has to go by it. And it's still in effect today. France has had several constitutions since Napoleon, as you pointed out, some of them. But there's then there's the brief period of the commune and then there's well that was in the constitutional regime but you have the third republic the fourth republic between the, the third and the fourth republic you've got vichy now we have a fifth republic some people want a sixth republic in france so you have all these different regimes but the, there is this continuity with the civil code now the other thing is that it was very important uh, in per, for pretty much all of these different constitutional thinkers in the first part of the 19th century to make sure at the same time that you have this codification of property, uh, that the people allowed to political to participate in the political process were people who owned property. And so you have these franchise requirements. So basically, you could vote if you paid a certain amount in property taxes. So it, strangely, it would be weird in an American context to think that the wealthy would want to pay a lot in taxes because that would allow them to control the political process, but that was the case. People actually wanted to pay money in taxes because that allowed them to have a monopoly on political life. And so the debate throughout the, the early 19th century, leading all the way up from, I'd say, the restoration uh, in 1814, 1815 of, of Louis XVI, the executed king's uh, brother, Louis XVIII, you skip the 17th. Don't worry about that. That's kind of like, where's the Napoleon II between Napoleon the first and the winter? Don't worry. Look it up on Wikipedia if you want. But that, the debate in political life is always, well, who, what determines the franchise? How much do you have to have in property in order to be able to participate in political life? And then people start saying, well, okay, there are these people who... Uh, who might not have a lot of property, but they're well-educated and they're sufficiently bourgeois, let's say lawyers or doctors or whatever, people with various various um, educational, higher educational degrees. And so then the question is, can these people who are also smart, 
and educated also participate in the political process. Because the argument justifying these fr franchise requirements is, well, people who own a lot of property have more leisure. They're going to be necessarily more intelligent than some working stiff who spends all his time working and doesn't really have time to be sufficiently informed and probably isn't literate and so forth. So this is the real debate which goes on and on and on throughout the throughout the early 19th century and which actually leads indirectly to the 1848 revolution because it's in a the beginning of a question of electoral reform which agitated people pretty much from the July monarchy throughout the July monarchy that there's this question is what is going to define the franchise initially these people say well doctors and lawyers and so forth notaries can they vote and then quickly people start saying well maybe everyone should vote and then and then Louis Philippe freaks out and runs off, and then you get universal manhood suffrage. Basically, it's an accident. It's not something that was inevitable at all. Like most revolutions are oftentimes not inevitable. They just read that way retrospectively. Now, with regards to Proudhon's anarchism, this is important because if you look at what is property, when he talks about being an anarchist, when he defines himself as an anarchist, and I don't know if Godwin also defined himself explicitly as an anarchist. Or God, no, Godwin didn't use that term to refer says, to himself. No, but say it. I am an anarchist. Uh, what are you? Am I a royalist? No. Am I a, a Democrat? No. Am I a, you know, I don't, and he goes through this whole list of things and he says, I'm an anarchist. Because I don't think that this question of electoral reform and modifying the franchise is actually going to solve the more fundamental question which is related to the sorts of social inequalities created by the existence of private property, which is codified again and enshrined in law in the civil code. So just to, to make this transition from your summary, these are two issues which preoccupy Proudhon and dominate actually this 1840 work, What is Property? Excellent. So now we're, now we're to What is Property? And I, one way I wanted to think about this, which is a way that I, that I got from you, that I got from your work, is thinking about Proudhon as a philosopher of contradictions, which he clearly is. And he starts off the, the famous statement in what is property, property is theft, which as he points out, that property cannot be theft. Theft is when you take someone else's property. So pro property is the opposite of theft in a conventional understanding. And Proudhon wants to say, no, pr precisely not. Property is not the opposite of theft. These two things are, are bound together in a very almost like post-structuralist way. Like man is not the opposite of woman. Man is woman and woman is man. So when he says property is theft, what's the, what's the hidden or forgotten um, truth that he is locating within the, the, the seeming contradiction? Well, what he's trying to, when he said that, yes, you're absolutely right. He's, everyone assumes that property is the opposite of theft. And he's trying to say that, in fact, if you look at all these different arguments made by legal theorists, philosophers, and political economists to sort of justify private property rights, they don't hold together. And in his book, he goes through a whole list of different kinds of arguments made to justify rights to private property. Some people argue in terms of natural rights. Some people argue that property attains its legitimacy through the labor that's put in to acquire it. Some people say, believe in first occupancy. Some people, you know, uh, I can't believe that it, it, it 
property has legitimacy through just by virtue of being enshrined in civil law. And basically he just points out that all of these arguments are aimed to legitimate private property, but none of them do because if you poke kind of holes at them, which he does, because much of the book, What is Property is sort of this close reading of these different arguments, uh, legitimating private property, you see that in fact they don't pull together and that in fact private property is not something which is legitimate because uh, ultimately it's something which is sort of aims to to defend uh, the persistence of social inequalities which seem to be in flagrant contradiction so to speak with the legal equality the nominal legal equality uh, brought by this Napoleonic civil code and this is sort of the the whole issue which people sometimes call in the 19th century the social question, which is this tension which exists between nominally legal equality and social inequality uh, with sort of political inequality somewhere in the middle, right, so to speak. And so when, when Prunel says that, you know, he's, he's trying to provoke his readership. And his readership was not, when he wrote that book, actually, he didn't have in mind a readership which was uneducated. In fact, he sort of is addressing uh, various bourgeois economists and and uh, people who have a lot of leisure, who are well-educated, uh, and certainly not, it isn't meant to be, a, it's meant to be a provocation, sort of a swifty and almost statement, uh, but at the same time, it's not necessarily meant, it shouldn't be read as a, a militant tract aimed to be read by, by the work, members of the working class. Um, but also I should state for the record that Prudhomme was fond of these contradictory statements. His, almost, his other really famous uh, statement is God is evil. So just like property is theft, it's sort of the opposite. God, you know, you think of God as in any monotheistic religion as sort of good, not as something which is evil or somehow an impediment to human perfectibility and progress. And this was also meant as a provocation. Similarly, so I, I think that people dwell a little bit on this question of property, but I think it's important to really try to understand, well, what, why did Proudhon actually write that book? Uh, and that's a di in a way, in my opinion, that's a different question. Yeah, so I, I want to get to that question. I do want to do now, though, a little bit of, so uh, when I had Ruth Kenna on to discuss Kropotkin, we talked, uh, I think I did like one of my very first um, philosophical jargon definitions on the show, which is I defined a priori. And Kropotkin is very clear that anarchism, as he defines it, does not come from logical rigor and a priori thinking. It comes from lived experience, lived experience that even goes back beyond human lived experience and is evolutionary. Reading Proudhon and reading your work on Proudhon he seems to me to be uh, attempting, and I guess you could argue Kant and all of these mm -hmm. thinkers are trying to do this, trying to attempt some sort of a priori and also evolutionary thought. It's some sort of synthesis that I can't quite follow. Can you, can you make sense of that? Because he's talking about all these logical rules and laws and rigor and, and poking holes in these things, but he also believes in some form of evolution and progress in a, in a way that I can't quite put together for myself. Maybe this question is more for me than for the listeners, but I imagine. No, no, it's fine. Weird. I mean, uh, this was the 
main criticism of Proudhon levied by Karl Marx in his 1847 uh, Poverty of Philosophy tract, which is a book written entirely against Proudhon's Philosophy of Poverty book, which is the book, by the way, in which Proudhon says in one chapter that God is evil. Um, Marx's criticism was that uh, Proudhon really never leaves his mind. So it's a sort of similar criticism that uh, Marx charged Hegel with. That you're sort of stuck in this uh, sort of dialectical form of reasoning in which you never sort of exit uh, these different sort of theories, uh, which would be a priori of uh, thinking about the world. Now, I mean, to some extent, well, Marx, I don't want to talk about Marx, but his, his book is very unfair. <laughs> like a lot of Marx, but particularly this book, it was, it's a book written in total bad faith because actually Marx was a big admirer of what is property and probably got the sort of gleanings of, a, uh, of what would become his theory of surplus value from actually what is property. Um, and he praised it a lot. It just by the time he got to 1846, he was decided he, he wanted to be the socialist thinker. So it was important to, in a way, denigrate Proudhon uh, as a way of drawing attention to the novelty of his own thoughts. And it was, of course, in Poverty of Philosophy that Marx sort of first developed his theory of the importance of the mode of production or whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, how uh, industry, in fact, is what is sort of determining in uh, technological innovations, what's determining um, change in our thoughts are determined in a way by these technological developments and their social ramifications. So he used this criticism of Proudhon's a priori reasoning to uh, develop this, his own theory. So it's an important, that book is an important moment in the sort of uh, bifurcation between Marxism, let's say, and anarchism, to put it crudely. But it's true that Proudhon was someone who was very, very interested in these epistemological questions, uh, certainly a lot more than Kropotkin. And I think that this has to do with his own, the particularities of his own biography. Now, Proudhon was someone who was uh, born to modest means, uh, his uh, father was a cooper who also made beer in a town called Besançon, which was at the time a, a very Catholic city in eastern France. It's where I'm actually where I actually live. Um, and uh, he was able to, through the intervention of a parish priest, uh, he was able to attend the local college, which would be the sort of I don't know what you'd call it, uh, grammar school or sort of what would give you an education during your teenage years. Uh, and he was uh, extremely gifted in Latin and Greek, but he had to drop out of school because his father went bankrupt and the family needed money. And uh, thereupon he worked as a printer uh, for the local diocese. And during this time as, uh, when he worked for the local diocese, because he was so skilled, at Latin and Greek. He actually became a sort of a proof corrector and he even taught himself Hebrew and he edited many, many books, uh, whether it be the Bible in Latin, the Vulgate, or uh, also various commentaries on different saints. And he developed an interest in comparative linguistics. 
And he was actually eventually able to get a scholarship to go to Paris in 1838, uh, which was exceptional. These various bourgeois notables uh, agreed to uh, finance this poor printer to study uh, various works of philosophy and philology in Paris between 1838 and 1841. And Proudhon's project was to examine the relation in a way between the, our linguistic faculties and our, facu our capacity to understand the world. And he had various theories about this, about the way in which all thought is somehow related to language and so forth. So he was very interested in these philosophical questions and he read a lot of different philosophers during this time, but he became uh, increasingly sort of preoccupied in sort of thinking about this with the origins of morality. Now it helped that while he was preoccupied by the origins of morality, that his own printing press or printing company went bankrupt back in Besançon. So while he was in Paris, one of his associates killed himself and there were all these financial problems and he had all these creditors on his back. And meanwhile, he's reading all these philosophers who seem to be uh, apologists for the established order uh, of the July monarchy, this regime uh, run by Louis Philippe that you mentioned with the bankers and so forth. Uh, and so I think he was struck by the sort of contradiction between the absence of serious social thought of these various uh, thinkers that he was reading while he was on his scholarship and uh, what he was actually experienced on a very uh, personal level with all these financial difficulties. So he sort of shifted from thinking uh, about the psychological origins of morality and justice and so forth, which he initially had an interest in through language, thinking about language, to sort of focusing more explicitly on this question of property. And so if you look at his reading notebooks, I spent many years reading his notebooks from his scholarship where you actually see what books he read and his particular commentaries on different passages of them, some of them integrated into his published work. And you really see this shift where he just eventually becomes exasperated by what he understood to be philosophy at the time, which was largely preoccupied with questions of either epistemology, uh, which at the time was called psychology or psychology, and philosophy, the philosophy of history, uh, which was very important to all these bourgeois thinkers during the July monarchy, because in a way people wanted to say the French Revolution was coming to an end and the July monarchy was the end of it. Sort of like uh, after 1989, you had people like Francis Fukuyama uh, making the argument about the end of history. You know, so the end of history was gonna end with a sort of enlightened uh, constitutional monarchy based with a private property franchise which would be open through this regime of legal equality in theory, uh, but would sort of weed out the uh, unwanted masses who would then later prove to be likely to vote for an authoritarian ruler <laughs> like Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. So uh, this was the, this was the, what Proudhon was confronted with, much like Marx was confronted with the inadequacies of Hegelian philosophy when he was a young man. And so he, Proudhon switched, and if you look at the books that are quoted the most in What is Property, it's works of these legal theorists, these civil code commentators that I mentioned, or political economists like Jean-Baptiste Sey, uh, who is the formulator of the law of supply and demand. 
uh, he was an economist from the late 18th century, early 19th century. He was the first person who formulated the law of supply and demand. And so, but really the, what drew Proudhon to make this argument was thinking about the origins of morality and its relation to psychology. And, and this is a theme which will dominate all of Proudhon's writings, which is sort of the question of justice and how is justice perceived. And for Proudhon, justice was something which was perceived internally. And so it's a sort of this internal awakening of feelings of justice and morality, which was very important to him and which in many ways distinguishes him from thinkers like Kropotkin or, uh, or, 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 much, or anarchists today, even more so, who are averse to kind of very robust moral theories and assumptions about human beings. All about that. It's like we're going to have a robust theory about how human beings reason, the relationship between their reason and their morality, and the importance of morality in contributing to social progress. And I think most people today would be, uh, most leftists, I think, would be kind of uh, reluctant to make uh, bold claims about what human morality should and should not be, for instance. And that's something which does indeed distinguish uh, Proudhon and much 19th century thought from 21st century beliefs. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about, uh, about a moral... Uh, about the way people think of on the left, or especially the anarchists think about moral theory to this day. So that, uh, just to make sure I understand, so the argument is Proudhon's thought is justice all the way through, which he seems to define as as liberty and equality among other things. And when he's in this, uh, this bourgeois monarchy, where the only thing that seems to matter is the acquisition of money, which is a great injustice against the people who, who do not have money, who are starving, who are unable to realize liberty or equality, he takes a turn towards political economy, which is why he's best, for, and he's best remembered for that, especially because he uses this phrase, you know, I, I am, I declare myself an anarchist, I am an anarchist. But the overall project and what looks like contradictions, which we can get to in a second, in terms of the banking and the currency, is always to bring about justice and equality and do so based on a understanding of human nature. And the political systems, the everything outside of that are just the tools by which to realize this, this justice. Yeah, I, I'd say that that's, that's the case because one of the problems with property, because it's not just money, it's property. Proudhon starts with a critique of property, and then he develops a theory, a critique of money, particularly in this 1846 work, The Philosophy of Poverty, and then in his various banking projects in 1848 and 1849. Um, but the initial pro problem is not so much money, but property. And by property, what Proudhon really means is what we might call today monopoly. Um, because what interests him is how there are different forces uh, in economic life which are vitiating and preventing a proper market exchange such that uh, producers 
can at least make back uh, what they put in in producing the goods they sell. So in a way, Bruno is a economic liberal insofar as he's not interested in moving beyond the free market, so to speak, or what we might call the free market, or the laws of supply and demand, or whatever you want to call it. What, what interests him is how is it that there are these various uh, forces, capital, private property, whatever you want to call it, which are preventing uh, basically the laws of supply and demand from, from, from working. So you could say in many respects, and if you follow the chapters uh, in What is Property, which take issue with a lot of the ideas of Jean-Baptiste Sassay, what he's doing is sort of critiquing liberal political economy, or in this case, the work of Jean-Baptiste Sassay, from the standpoint of Jean-Baptiste Say, saying it's an egalitarian reading of the laws of supply and demand, saying, look, you political economists are saying this, these are laws of political economy, but they don't work because there's private property. So it's sort of a liberal critique, you could say, of private property, so the liberal property critique. So it's not about so much getting rid of, I guess you could call it uh, what Marxists would call capitalism, the free market, or so forth. It's about actually reforming uh, the way markets work such that actually products can be exchanged for other products, which is the definition of the law of supply and demand given by Jean-Baptiste Say in the late 18th century. In order for markets to clear, you have to be able to sort of self sell sort of equal amounts of goods. Otherwise, you won't have a free market, right? And it's why also I think Proudhon, in what is property, if you pay attention particularly to the last chapter of it, which is in many ways the key chapter to understanding the moral theory of Proudhon and how it relates to psychology and so forth, and it's the same chapter in which he also says that he is an anarchist, the this la in this last chapter, Proudhon also says, I'm not in favor of property. I'm also not in favor of what he calls community or what he sometimes later on calls communism. What I'm looking for is sort of a third way or a third form of ownership, which would be neither a private property-based regime or a communistic regime. And by, by communism, uh, Proudhon could mean many things uh, in, the in the way he uses the term community, uh, ownership, it could be some kind of feudalistic ownership, it could be one in which the state owns everything, it, it could be one, you know, uh, in which there's sort of uh, uh, monopolies such that there is no actual free market. Proudhon uh, um, is opposed to both things, and what he then later develops sort of as an alternative to this, uh, these two opposing poles is a theory of what he calls mutualism. And you, perhaps you discussed this with uh, when you talked to Ruth Kinna about Kropotkin, but basically the idea of mutualism is how can you imagine uh, forms of exchange in which there would producers would directly exchange with one another their different goods, such there wouldn't be all these parasitic intermediaries, whether it be the landlord you pay rent to or the bank banker who charges you a ton of interest for because interest rates were very high back then. Uh, for uh, giving you a loan or so forth. So how can you imagine this kind of uh, system? And uh, he calls it mutualism. Mutualism is a term which comes from 
in, in Prunel's logic, it comes from actually uh, uh, from the Roman law definition, mutum, which is a, the exchange of fungible goods. So basically it's this idea that you should be exchanging uh, goods directly and not accumulating them uh, for no reason. So that therefore you have the maximum amount of goods sort of circulating within markets. And this would be a sort of positive way of incentivizing sort of a, a, a supply supply oriented way uh, uh, of thinking about the market, not a, the supply is much more important to Prudhomme than demand, because if you have, if you, you create ideal conditions for producers to produce their goods, then there will actually be a natural equilibrium between production and consumption. So I was thinking, um, as we're talking about contradictions, and we're already thinking about Prudhomme as a, as an anarchist who in some ways doesn't fit into many of the narratives about anarchism, obviously the biggest one is the man who wrote property is theft or property is robbery, uh, robbery later in his life becomes associated with a positive view of property. And I was hoping you could explain how, you know, how, how does that fit in the arc of his life and the arc of what's happening around him to make sense of this, what seems like a dramatic change. I think that's a that's a great question, and it's true that after Proudhon dies in early uh, 1865, uh, one of the I think it's this third book which is published after his death, so posthumously, it's a book called Theory of Property, and I think part of this has been translated into that anthology, English language anthology, uh, Property is Theft, actually. And this theory of property book seems kind of contradictory because in the book, uh, as it was published, and this is important, the, as it was published part, um, Prudhomme seems to be arguing quite clearly that property, although illegitimate as a right, you can't really justify it as a right to exclusively own something, um, is uh, legitimate as an institution. Uh, understood as sort of a, a product of society insofar as it is a, a, um, a counterweight to the state. In other words, that private property could be perceived as something which is sort of curbing state power. So if you give private property to enough people, then you won't have sort of despotism, for instance. And this, okay, is, but a common, this is a common argument which is used by libertarians in the 20th century to sort of suggests that the proliferation of, of private property will prevent things from happening, like, you know, getting something like the Soviet Union. So uh, before we go on with this, and I think I want to hear a lot more, the first, the first thing that I'm hearing, though, is we talked about, like, a priori. Like, when he talks about property as theft, he's saying, I've worked it out almost like mathematically, logically, it cannot be justified. And you're saying there's a difference between it being able to be justified in the sense of like twice two is four for him versus the use of it and the outcomes for it, which is not a priori, is not up in the sky of abstract ideas, but the actual institutional effect of property on the world. Whereas the people he's arguing against, the social economists, in uh, when he writes what is property, they are writing property is some sort of almost a priori truth about the universe. Is that is that a way to think about it? Sure, I mean, well, how about if I put it this way? This second argument about property, this mature argument is a historical argument. 
Now, this is sort of, the problem is this, this text is incomprehensible because as it was published by the executors <laughs> of Proudhon, it's just a chapter of a much larger manuscript uh, about Poland, which I've actually been working on for ages and, and someone um, like Sean Wilbur has been working on recently in Libertarian Labyrinth. And it, as it was published, you can't understand what it's about because it seems like it does seem like a kind of form of apostasy. Now, I think the best way to understand this later argument is to situate it in the context of the evolution of Proudhon's thought, particularly after 1848. Now, we already talked about how Proudhon became preoccupied uh, with the uh, advent uh, of the application of universal manhood suffrage in France with the dangers posed by democracy, insofar as democracy itself uh, could wind up, depending on how it was applied uh, politically, wind up kind of creating authoritarian regime as it did in France. Because this idea of the person who rules should be, you know, the, what, 50 plus one, uh, winner of the votes isn't really a proper way for society to represent itself and could lead to sort of the success of all sorts of charlatans and demagogues and so forth. And so we talked already about how Napoleon III, before that president Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, was quite successful in manipulating the masses and various popular resentments against uh, various bourgeois elites in coming to power. At the same time, he sort of uh, allowed those same elites to sort of benefit from his corrupt regime. Now, this experience of the Second Republic, so this period between 1848 and the coup d'etat, really caused a, a, a radical shift in the orientation of Proudhon's thought, insofar as he started to think that, well, I was previously preoccupied with sort of economic questions, but these political questions are actually very, very important and they aren't, they shouldn't be secondary. So in a way, uh, you could say that this question of finding some legitimacy uh, for private property as a counterweight to the state grows out of this evolution, but it's more than that. Because basically with the advent of the movement for electoral reform, Proudhon also became preoccupied with a more philosophical question, which is slightly more complex, which is what is the reality of society and how can it be represented? Now, this is a sort of different question, but he came to the conclusion more or less between the 1847 period and the end of his life that basically what you could argue, and a lot of people say because of this sort of theory, which is an undercurrent of a lot of his writings, that he's a precursor to the sociological thought of people like Durkheim and so forth, that Society has an ontological status, which is separate and distinct from individuals. And so basically, uh, if you think of it this way, uh, the way society works can, and the tr sort of truth as it could be understood in the movement of history can only under be understood sort of after the fact. Individuals reason in terms of, you know, maybe a priori reasoning and they principles and so forth. But to understand the sort of truth of the of society or the history of humanity or whatever you want to call it, you can really only understand that after it happens. Now, obviously, Proudhon was a firm believer in progress and he thought that things were getting better, right? 
to this extent, this theory of property grows out of this sort of attempt to think about society and its different institutions. How does it grow out of a thinking about Poland, for instance? Well, one of the things that preoccupied Proudhon once he was sent into exile in 1858 and he was living in Belgium was the question of the principle of nationalities. Because around that time, Napoleon III was actively intervening in Italy to further the interests of unification. Now, Proudhon was opposed to this, just as he was opposed to those who were in general in favor of what was called the principle of nationalities, which in other words, we could call today in favor of the nation state. Now this was sort of a progressive cause. Napoleon III was pushing for Italian unification, but at the same time, many members of the Republican and Socialist left always have been in favor of that since 1848. Because remember in 1848, the big issue was precisely this question of how can you make popular sovereignty overlap with the expression of nationhood, uh, otherwise oftentimes identical with conceptions of society based on certain features like linguistics, culture, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Now, all of this was seen as being very, a source of instability, so to speak, for the arrangements that had been set up in the wake of Napoleon with the Congress of Vienna. So in 1814, 1815, where you had sort of a geopolitical balance of power, which was established with these between these dominant hegemons. And then you have these sort of minor states, which were sort of allowed to coexist or within the, under the umbrella of these hegemons, for instance, in the case of the Austrian empire, not yet the Austrian Hungarian empire. Now, when Napoleon III was doing all of this, Proudhon was concerned because he thought this was gonna create more and more instability. You're gonna have all these different countries who are gonna then be advocating having nationhood, and this is inevitably gonna to lead to more war. So you not just have Italy, but you have Poland, you have the question of Hungary, you have the question of eventually German unification. So once you sort of let the cat out of the bag and you start promoting uh, unification, uh, then you're gonna have different problems. So he, Started, he wrote a book called War and Peace, which is about to come out in translation, I believe this summer with AK Press, um, in which he sort of addressed this question of international law, the right of force. Uh, he presented a lot of paradoxical arguments in their own right, which I won't get into. But one of the passages which was ex considered extremely controversial in this book was a sort of sub chapter on Poland in which he said that Poland just shouldn't exist. And remember that Poland was partitioned uh, in the late 18th century, three times, and had it effectively disappeared from the map of Europe. So it would have been kind of divided up between um, Prussia, uh, Austria, and Russia. Now, the Polish cause was sort of very consensual cause at the time, because not only would you have r various Republicans and Bonapartists who were in favor of uh, uh, Polish uh, reunification and nationhood, but you also had Catholics. So it's pretty much everyone in France wanted Poland to be to exist again as a, as a nation state. Now Proudhon uh, started thinking about this when he got attacked um, by all these different people uh, following the publication of his book on War and Peace, and he started thinking about why shouldn't Poland exist. And one of the conclusions he drew is that Poland and Slavic countries more generally uh, never really had institutions like private property. 
in other words, if you think of the history of property relations uh, as something which was sort of brought on by the Roman influence, so Roman law being applied in, throughout Europe uh, in contradiction to, for, let's say, Germanic law, you have these vestiges of uh, Roman law, which exist in things like the Napoleonic Code, which we already talked about. Now, these aren't private property isn't something that necessarily good in itself, but it does further kind of notions of individual liberty and the aspirations to freedom, which in Prunel's eyes made Western Europe distinct from Eastern Europe. And so out of this, he wound up sort of writing a chapter in the course of writing this book against Poland about this sort of natural anthropological origins of the state and also of, of, about property and the history of property. Now, what the editors did uh, after Proudhon died was just take the chapter on property and publish it, saying basically Proudhon liked private property uh, insofar as it was property without rent. So if you own property, but you weren't collecting rent as a landlord, you know, let's say, that that's something which is acceptable. But really this argument that Proudhon was trying to develop, and it's not sure that he actually even agreed with it at the end of his life, because there's evidence that he thought, well, maybe I went too far in this sort of neo-Roman defense of private property. Uh, the argument he was trying to develop was in relationship to this question of both the state and the newfound power of the state granted by sort of the experiments in democracy, because the experiments in democracy could lead to authoritarianism. And the question of well, what is it about Western Europe and the West more generally, which is distinct in many ways from Eastern Europe. So he's trying to make two simultaneous arguments in which he thought that perhaps you could promote this idea of, of private property against the state. And you have to also understand in France uh, around this time, uh, Napoleon III was actually endorsing a lot of eminent domain legislation to set up the railways, which was seen as furthering also these various banking and financial interests. So it's sort of, you can imagine this sort of in this kind of reasoning, how he would be led to develop, make this argument. It's not certain, however, that it was his final ultimate argument, but it should be understood as sort of being situated in this sort of post-1848 reevaluation of thinking about the importance of politics in which suddenly politics and political life seem almost potentially more dangerous than these previous economic questions, which seemed to good, they could be sort of debated safely in a vacuum during the July monarchy. Uh, and also thinking about what is a society and do societies sort of have a life of their own uh, or lives of their own such that we can only really understand them historically. So this sort of, there's this historical element, which is sort of also more pronounced in Proudhon's later writings. That, that was all fascinating, Edward. It, as so frequently happens, it accords with what's happening in, in America, which you know is what I say at this time, Emerson and especially Thoreau in this era are arguing against the railroads precisely for this reason, because they are going to knit everything together in a way that is conducive to authoritarianism, manifest destiny, imperialism, colonialism, and they will destroy the, the, the farms, the freeholders that are not just the essence of the American project, but the essence of liberty, which is why, again, these thinkers 
like Emerson and Thoreau, Randolph Bourne, sit somewhere between anarchism and libertarianism because they seem to be defenders of property. It sounds like we can add Proudhon to this list also. They're defenders of property in this small-scale, uh, self-sustaining way. And in fact, they're the enemies of the giant, you know, when we think of private property, we're actually referring to, you know, a man or an institution who controls most of or much of the public world. And that's not what they are meaning by, by private property. John D. Rockefeller does not have private property in this sense, but the farm oh, that sure. yeah. Rockefeller's trains might destroy does does have private property. So the protection of those farms is in fact a a a positive good for freedom and progress. If I'm Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. And I mean in in this historical analysis that Proudhon presented towards the end of his life, he saw the big distinction being between what he called freehold property or allodial property, if you want to get technical and use a kind of um, historical ling legal language. So freehold property on the one hand and feudal property on the other. So the, the thief is different from the freehold property, right? Because the thief, you have the Lord who's sort of uh, letting someone else use his, his domain. But, you know, that person is a sort of vassal and a dependent on the Lord for this sort of having this use right. Whereas the person who has the small freehold is just on his own little freehold, you know, like Little House on the Prairie style, you know, he's just doing his thing. Now, it's no coincidence that perhaps Proudhon sort of developed this juxtaposition between freehold property and fiefdoms or feudal arrangements. And in fact, he even described what was going on with the railways and this, the setting up of the railways in France as a form of industrial uh, feudalism. And actually, you see the legacy of this in the railway, uh, the way the railways were set up in France today, because if you look at any map of the French railway system, the TGV, which is actually a quite good railway system. Uh, you, you notice the lines, they all come from Paris and they all go back from Paris, but you can't actually cross France without going to Paris. So if you're in Eastern France or you're in Western France, you have to, or Southern France, you have to, and you're trying to get to the other side of the country, you have to go to Paris first and then go back to go in the other direction where you're going. And of course, this happened precisely because all the financial interests and the people who are funding these things were in Paris, as was the imperial government, of course, that was responsible for sort of setting up these lines initially during this period. So you can see the legacy of this and how it worked. And that is kind of a form of feudalism, because then you have a you have, in a way, a map of the way the railways are, which doesn't actually reflect the geography uh, of the country. Okay, this is really, this is very important stuff, Edward, because this is not, I did not understand this about Proudhon before, um, but I consider it, I consider it absolutely crucial. I've got an episode coming out actually on capitalism that's really about this, this topic that, um, you know, one of the things Marx says about capitalism is that everything is going to be flowing constantly and that's going to disintegrate everything. And this seems clearly not true. Things were not flowing. So to, 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 to use Proudhon in my current understanding of this, and you can tell me if this is right, and if, if I've got this right, then Proudhon is deeply, what I would say, anarchist, even if he seems sort of on the fringes when uh, Kropotkin writes about them. So the argument goes in what is often called capitalism or the free market. You actually just have 
monopolies. You have these enormous assemblages of power and wealth where it doesn't flow and they can just make their living off rent, off interest, and they exploit everyone else. And then uh, the, the, the traditional role of the government, certainly the role of the July monarchy, is to side with these wealthy and powerful assemblages of power. And then you've got stability, a bad form of stability in terms of the king stays king and the wealthy stays wealthy. The alternative option, the traditional alternative option, communism, which I'm not going to associate with Bakunin, but associate with Marx, is to say, we we don't want flow because flow can, you know, all the money or all the food can flow away from someone and they will starve and die. So we also want stability. We want this communal sharing. We want another big block that stays and, and gives everyone what they need, the food and shelter. And Kropotkin argues, and it sounds like Proudhon also argues, as soon as you set up that form of communism, you have just created a different monopoly. And it doesn't matter whether the monopoly is made up of bankers or uh, whatever they, whatever Lenin called like his commissars or whatever. You want yeah, to. it doesn't matter whether they're called bankers or commissars. They are ultimately people sitting in the room making decisions. And ultimately, if you wanted to farm, because uh, you wanted to make wheat because you wanted your friend to exchange his bread for your wheat, the monopolists will forbid you to do that if you don't own the land. And the government might forbid you to do that if you don't have the right license. But also the USSR will forbid you to do that because it wasn't in their tables of allocation of who was supposed to be farming. And so in this sense of authoritarian communism or a so-called liberal capitalism, things are not flowing, the law of supply and demand, the uh, invisible hand is not actually operating. And then we might say, okay, so maybe capitalism isn't so bad if capitalism means what Proudhon calls mutualism and whether the monopoly is done by the state in collusion with corporations or whether just it's done straight by a Leninist or Maoist state, the result is lack of freedom and frankly, lack of food and shelter. Is that, is that yeah, a core? I mean, that's sort of the idea. I mean, the, there's a sort of misnomer about Proudhon that he wanted to abolish the state altogether. I mean, I think paradoxically, really what, if you look at his manuscripts, which I've studied for years now, and what he really wanted was a, was kind of a regulatory state actually, in which the state's sort of chief job is to prevent monopoly so that you know, the interest rates are kept low so that no one could uh, corner the market on anything. Uh, so, you know, that, I mean, he wanted to also incentivize sometimes, not in all cases, but uh, for uh, sometimes for tra in transportation, for instance, that sometimes it would, he thought it would be better for um, certain companies to be run by the actually the people who uh, are in charge of let's say a railway line or whatever, but he didn't, he wasn't necessarily someone who thought that um, the state had chief job was, was sort of supplying key services, although he wasn't opposed to some forms of public education or some forms of sort of, you know, basic uh, utility services or public services. But he thought the important thing was whether it be private or public, that no one be allowed to have total control over something. And so this is a little bit, you know, this is a little bit different way of 
of thinking about things. I think this anti-monopoly discussion has sort of come to the fore because people think about recently about big tech and the control of information and so forth. And there has been a sort of a resurgence of anti-monopolistic thinking in America. Um, but in a way, this is sort of the tradition that Proudhon was part of, which was also involved denouncing stock market speculation. He would later write a book against stock market speculation, which was highly successful. It's sort of a technical book about the way uh, different companies like the railways uh, interact with the complicit speculators in the stock market. He thought all this was pretty terrible. Um, but you know, that is his interest is how do you prevent uh, these monopolies from forming? And, it, and, and Proudhon wasn't attached necessarily to writing about property all of his life. He, as you suggested, and I, I did too, he then took an interest in money. In 1848, he wanted to create these banks, which would have basically zero interest rates in which the currency itself would be sort of based on the value of the different goods in circulation of the different producers. The whole idea of, the, of mutualism was also sort of to create or encourage or foster different networks of producers who would exchange goods between one another, sort of to create a parallel economy, which would eventually become dominant uh, of producers, uh, which would sort of shift the circulation of goods away from the bourgeois classes to the people who are actually making goods, which would then he believed in a kind of uh, naive way might incentivize these sort of bourgeois rentier types to then to have to make some goods of their own, right? Um, so all these theories are weren't necessarily sketched out with a lot with a great degree of precision, but the the criticisms are that Proudhon makes, whether it be of private property or or even for that matter of the the sort of naive application of universal manhood suffrage, are, are quite interesting, I think, and are still relevant to to us today. I could not agree more. I had coming into this conversation, I thought of Proudhon as a sort of, you know, evolutionary dead end and uh, and a historical oddity, the first anarchist. But uh, I, I'm very interested in him now in him now as a as one of the fathers of anarchism. I usually leave him off and just say uh, Kropotkin and uh, Bakunin, and you know, Proudhon was this weird guy who thought he was an anarchist but liked money. Um, and no, so no, he didn't like money. He wanted to get rid of money. Right. Oh, I, I understand, that. Money I understand that, would not, that now. Like money that would not be based on gold and silver. Uh, money that would be based directly on labor. Uh, and which, which would bypass all of these various uh, intermediaries and in financial markets. I mean, I think that Proudhon is foreign to us today because of the moralism. I think he's a... He is, there's a footnote in um, What is Property, which already anticipates this, uh, but uh, he is a misogynist uh, and anti-feminist. He was very much invested in um, uh, sexual bimorphism, so to speak, the differences between men and women. Uh, and But this is the paradox, this sort of moralistic stuff, which bothers people today, which makes us perhaps more inclined to be interested in, in less overtly moral thinkers on the left. Uh, this moralism was important for his anarchism because for Proudhon, 
if you weren't going to have a state or you're going to have a minimal regulatory state, you have got to be super moral uh, because uh, otherwise things aren't going to work. It's actually one of the reasons why he's opposed to communism is because basically you have to have a system in which everyone has to work. Uh, and in order to eat, they've got to work. And because uh, if they don't, then they're just parasites. So, uh, you know, in a way, a lot of these, a lot of the thinking of Proudhon is sort of that of a workaholic, which he himself was, because <laughs> it's, it is about everyone having to work. And it's not about leisure or having leisure time or the time to think about, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to think about, write poetry or all that stuff that Marx talked about in the German ideology, you know, doing literary criticism at night and doing all sorts of different things. Um, it's really about how everyone has to work, but how can you create the conditions where actually people can make a livelihood doing something? And this is a moral critique uh, of uh, capitalism in a way. Uh, I use the term, it's kind of anachronistic, but you know, it's, it's, it's something which we're not necessarily comfortable with. And by the same token, that's where the misogyny comes from. Uh, because what preoccupied Proudhon in many ways, in which people find disturbing and why they kind of run away from his later work, because towards the end of his life, Proudhon wrote a bunch of texts in which he made a, making a lot of misogynistic arguments. What, what Proudhon was interested in was, and obsessed by, was that if you have sexual liberation uh, and equality between men and women, which most other socialists actually advocated, you make divorce easier, you make... Um, you know, you give women the right to vote and so forth. Uh, the more inequality you have between the sexes, it's going to cause men to kind of go crazy. Uh, and it's going to prevent this sort of ideal society in which everyone will be ultra moralistic uh, because they'll become sort of sex obsessed by, uh, by having sexual liberation. So this is these are reasons, I think. And I think the sexual question, we didn't talk about it and we weren't planning on talking about it, but and I can't remember the exact passage in what is property, you can find it later and add it to the podcast, but in which he mentions this difference between men and women and in a footnote in what is property, but it, it is a theme which comes out later in, in his writings. But I think that this anti-feminism is a crucial reason why people kind of have a hard time talking about Bruno because you don't get that in Bakunin and you don't get that in, um, in Kropotkin at all, right? This moralism. Uh, and the moralism is actually important to understanding Proudhon's theory of property. Yeah, that makes that all makes sense. I mean, I will say there's there's crucial ways in which Bakunin and Kropotkin will be remembered as feminists. Emma Goldman, obviously, uh, beyond either of those, but Emma Goldman very clearly. I mean, it's not always overt, but her she also believes in in the sexes in the differences in the sexes, not, it seems, in the realm of economy, but in the realm of uh, relationships and has has odes to heterosexuality in in her work. So if we're, if we're looking for uh, like a true gender anarchism, that would include not just gender roles, but thinking about transgender and non-binary uh, ways of being in the world, we're not going to find it. At least I haven't found it in the in the 19th century and i'm no, a big... it's impossible because everyone is really invested in uh, 
in sexual differentiation. You can so, find it when you go further back. Yeah. You, you can go further back, but I mean, Foucault is the great historian of this. The late 18th and the 19th century are, are the great moment, is the great moment of this gender differentiation. And so that's just not the place to look for it. And Well, well sure. But then the other thing is that, and here it's not unrelated to the question of um, private property, is that the, the civil code was, is, was perceived, and many historians have written about this, was perceived as a empowering men uh, of all classes because it sort of it allowed sort of these questions of property ownership and uh, breadwinners within households to sort of have a very well-defined role and um, so this question of uh, of property and the breadwinner and so forth was linked to this uh, question of uh, sexuality and sexual difference. And in a way, you could say that, uh, that sexual differentiation and the prospect of women being just being able to work at home was actually perceived by people like Proudhon as sort of a, a great triumph of the French Revolution, uh, where you wouldn't have these sort of household economy. So the sexual differentiation was even seen as a sort of form of, uh, of progress. But I, I mean, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to defend these ideas. I don't find them defensible. I, but I do think, and here I would address myself directly to your audience, that it's very important uh, when you are studying thinkers from a previous era to see in them what is sort of foreign, not just what is familiar and what is reassuring and it's like oh so that's where anarchism began but also to recognize the sort of foreign problems uh which should have generated these ideas and it's only once you understand you know that that you can really understand what your origins really and there's probably too much of an emphasis i think i mean maybe this is dying down now but i i noticed this particularly during the trump era of sort of uh canceling people because they have bad ideas and uh you know you can always find somebody in the past who's had bad ideas i mean marx if you look at his correspondence <laughs> an anti-semite racist Proudhon gets accused of being an anti-semite too i don't really think he's much of an anti-semite Proudhon no more than anyone else in the 19th century but that says something about the 19th century too the same thing with the misogyny and so forth you're going to find these problems but I, I think it's important not to dwell too much on them. That's just the way people were back then. Because if you dwell too much on that, you're not going to see that the, you're going to mistake things which were actually pretty common uh, for things that are exceptional because we just perceive things differently. But I still think that we can learn, nevertheless, despite these differences in worldview, from these earlier thinkers. Yeah, so the way I address this issue is with Nietzsche's theory of, of critical history, which is every every person deserves to be canceled, uh, deserves to be destroyed, is is the product of, of villainy and evil. And Nietzsche says sometimes you do need to, uh, I can cancel, he doesn't use the word cancel, but he says destroy. You do need to destroy someone historically. But he says be very, very careful with that. Because once you destroy them, you have destroyed all of their ideas. And there are very few thinkers throughout history 
who, who deserve to have all of their ideas removed from the historical record. And this is such a dangerous weapon. You should wield it very lightly. And I think you're right, Edward, that people have been wielding that weapon uh, indiscriminately. And I also do think we are we are moving uh, towards a, a a turning point in that. But I guess time will tell. Um, yeah, it does. It does seem that way. Thankfully, I mean, I think a lot of the hysteria uh, during because in a way, this to get back to this Napoleon the Third thing. I mean, in a way, a lot of people drew comparisons. Uh, between uh, Napoleon III, at least in France, and this sort of Trump era when you had different people, whether it be Trump or, or, or Johnson or Orban or, you know, whoever, uh, uh, Erdogan, uh, these sort of democratically elected figures who are sort of authoritarian or perceived as being authoritarian. Uh, I think Johnson fits that role a little bit less. He's too disheveled. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> You, you, you had this, there was this period when people kind of talked about that, they had different terms to describe it, this kind of combination between sort of democracy and authoritarianism, you know. So you had this hysteria about that on the part of the elite class, whether it be in America or pretty much anywhere else. It's like, well, gee, what, what are we to do if the masses are asses and they're going to vote these people in? Because really the right people aren't governing, right? They're these idiots who are prejudiced and so forth, who are governing. If, if only we could get the Harvard lawyers and economists in the government, That's that would that would solve the problem. You're right. So this is a similar, <laughs> these are kind of similar problems to the 19th century when they were talking about reforming the, the voting laws. You know, this idea, well, doctors and lawyers should be able to vote too, you know, not just people who own a lot of uh, landed property. I mean, this is an argument about meritocracy, right? Which is like, yes. who deserves to vote? Like, well, the people who have the most merit. Well, who are those people? Are they the most intelligent people? Are they the richest people or whatever? These aren't problems which have gone away. Uh, and so this tension between meritocracy and populism or meritocracy and authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, these were very 19th century problems. They're not, they haven't disappeared. What's interesting is that Proudhon sort of refuses both. Yeah. You know, both these both these polls, these competing polls, whether it be the bourgeois elites or the, you know, chauvinistic uh, Bonapartists who are into sort of, you know, some notion of national glory and and so forth, you know, and, and, and that's where I think that he has something to offer and, and particularly his, his political criticisms of democracy are quite, you know, still profound today that basically if you define, if you think voting is gonna solve your problem, <laughs> Well, you're deluded. Uh, you're going to have to think. And Proudhon wasn't necessarily entirely against voting per se. He was at the end of his life. He sort of defended the idea of blank ballots and and abstention. But it was only within the context of the Second Empire. If it were a Republican government, he would have felt differently. But he did think that you have to redefine the way people vote if you want to make it uh, effective. And the two ways he thought this could be done would be having representation either be based on profession or based on the locality or municipality in which you lived. Because he said, otherwise, you are going to necessarily get people voting for like giving a blank slate to people like Napoleon. And I think this, this way of thinking about uh, voting uh, and criticizing empty conceptions of voting as a sort of panacea to social problems uh, or political problems even, 
still remains relevant to our day. I mean, it's sort of the heart of it's why anarchism is interesting in many ways. I, Edward, I moved, I moved away from my liberal democratic uh, place into anarchism during the Trump era. Um, well, also I had some run-ins with some asshole bosses. So Graver was very helpful with that because mm -hmm. during the Trump era, I saw my, my team of elite liberals engage in frankly, hysterical anti-democracy. And I was like, if my options are, you know, uh, technocratic, liberal, well-intended authoritarianism versus uh, racist populist authoritarianism, I'm done playing this game. And I went looking for another option. And it's, uh, I'm convinced that, uh, that there's a really important way in which Proudhon is, if not the founder, one of the key founders of, of this other way of doing things. And in this sense, he is a founder of anarchism. Well, certainly his, and, and I'll just say this for your audience to encourage them to, to read him. It doesn't necessarily come, up, come out in the What is Property book, but his political ideas, particularly as expounded in, uh, I think the general idea of revolution in the 19th century, this book has been translated into English. Um, uh, his political ideas are more sophisticated uh, than what you find in Bakunin and Karpotkin. So if you want to look at these founding figures of, Anarchism, you have a more interesting, I think, uh, reflection on uh, on popular sovereignty and its various dysfunctionalities uh, than you get in a lot of other anarchist thought because he really gets down to the basics and then he applies it to all these problems in the in the really that came to a head in this 1848 era roughly between 1848 and the coup d'etat in late 1851, where there was this whole discussion as to, well, we have democracy, but it doesn't work. So what are we going to do about it? You know, it's like, give the people a choice. They will vote to have uh, Napoleon's nephew be the president, and they'll have a, a legislature, which will be composed of a bunch of aristocrats and rich guys. You know, and... Uh, and the left at the time was really confronted with the dilemmas. Like we were pushing this solution that voting was the answer and it clearly wasn't. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about Bruno is he's saying, well, that's because it isn't a solution because these social problems are actually the, the real problems. And, 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 and voting isn't necessarily going to solve the reorganization of the economy uh, and society. In fact, any voting that results in a centralized top-down authority is going to prevent the solution from that. Yes, that, that is his argument. Yes, perfect. Okay, I think I think that's it. If that sounds good to you, I mean, we could keep talking forever, but man, the... well, you can invite if you want to talk about other things written by Proudhon, and you know, invite me back on. I'd be happy to discuss this. I've been studying it for years and have been editing his manuscripts for years, so I certainly know the subject pretty well. Yeah, no, without a doubt, without a doubt, Edward, I will be in touch. This was a pleasure. Okay, it was a pleasure to be on. Good luck with everything. Thank you. So, I have a whole new way of thinking about Proudhon. If this was your first introduction of to Proudhon, you should know that uh, Edward's take is, if not necessarily unconventional, at least much more thorough and in-depth than any I have received before, and I look forward to having Edward back on the show sometime to talk more about Proudhon. 
Remember, you can find out more about this series, Anarchism 101, at everydayanarchism.com. You can also ask me questions about it by emailing everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And I also need to remind you, you can give at the website, or you can just tell a friend about the show or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Next month in Anarchism 101, we will be doing an excerpt from Mikhail Bakunin. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.